Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello and welcome to The Bunker. I'm Roz Taylor. Remember when we had a special relationship with the U.S., when Tony Blair looked into George Bush's eyes and gripped him firmly by the hand at Camp David? Things have gone downhill since then. Barack Obama didn't have much time for David Cameron, and the feeling was apparently mutual. Boris Johnson seemed to get on with Donald Trump. But they didn't have much time to hit it off before Joe Biden arrived in the White House. By last month, Liz Truss was forced to admit that a US-UK trade deal wasn't on the cards anytime soon, and Joe Biden made it clear what he thought of the kind of trickle-down economics Truss has embraced. But one relationship is doing a lot better these days, the one between Joe Biden and Emmanuel Macron, the French president. With me to talk about it is Rie Montaz, a consultant research fellow at the International Institute for Strategic Studies. Welcome to the bunker, Rie. Thank you for having me, Roz. Things looked very different last year, didn't they? Tell us about how France and the US fell out over submarines. Ah, yes. The famous AUKUS. And, you know, the UK had quite a big hand in that fallout. But if our listeners cast back their minds to almost exactly a year ago, it was September that we discovered that there was this deal. And this deal is a partnership, a security partnership between the US, the UK and Australia over nuclear submarines, just to keep things very simple. Unfortunately, that came at the expense of a deal that Australia had to buy French submarines. And actually, that deal was so important for the French, they had deemed it and called it the deal of the century. And that deal was scrapped without the French being told ahead of time. And the French actually discovered AUKUS was happening shortly before the whole world discovered it when the American president, the British prime minister, and the Australian prime minister held their big press conference to make the public announcement. And you can imagine just how stark raging mad the French were, especially the French presidency, to be blindsided this way. And they made it very, very clear. They took some unprecedented steps, to be honest, at the time. They recalled their ambassador to the US, which had never happened in the history of the relationship between those two countries, some of you know the oldest allies around. They completely stopped talking to the UK for a while. They just ignored it. And they recalled also their ambassador to Australia and that relationship slowly mending. But by October 2021, things had been patched up. We view you as an incredibly valuable, serious partner. Article 5 means everything to us. 
you were there for us, we'll be there for you, and there's a lot more work we can do together. Guaranteed. No, no, don't thank me. Thank you. Thank you. Were there other tensions between the two powers? Oh, absolutely. And I will say it's it's actually very interesting to to watch the relationship between the two countries as it's embodied by the relationship between the two presidents, whoever they are at the time. So there is a difference between the relationship between Emmanuel Macron, the French president, and Donald Trump when he was president of the U.S., and the current relationship between Emmanuel Macron and Joe Biden, the current U.S. president. When Trump was president, Macron thought his way to try to be constructive and move forward with someone like Trump was to try to set up a kind of bromance. And so he did everything he could to woo him that way. He invited him to Paris, to the annual military parade that uh, happens on Bastille Day to commemorate you know, the French Revolution. And he kept really uh, making a huge effort to constantly take very special care of Trump. Even as Macron was wooing him this way, Trump started attacking him on Twitter when the French were, or a part of the French population was protesting in the streets. And then, you know, Biden was elected and and everyone thought, great, there's a new Democrat president, a Democratic president in the White House. So the relationship is going to get much better. That's actually a misconception. People think that Democrats are, you know, get along better with their European counterparts. That's not the case. Uh, Obama left quite a sour taste in the in the mouth of, for example, the former French president, uh, François Hollande, when in 2013, at the last minute, he backed out of carrying out strikes uh, in Syria as punishment for uh, the Syrian regime using chemical weapons and kind of left the French really in the lurch and in a ditch. So that's really a misconception, right? And the relationship between Biden and Macron got off to a very rocky start. It got it started with Angela Merkel, who used to be the German chancellor at the time, and Macron holding a meeting, a summit by video conference with their Chinese counterpart, Xi Jinping, just as the Biden administration was still in transition and the national security advisor for Biden the one who was going to become his national security advisor, Jake Sullivan, did something very unusual. He tweeted publicly kind of a request to the French and the Germans not to go ahead with the meeting, to wait until the Biden administration had been inaugurated and so that all the, the partners and the allies could decide on a common approach to China. When Trump was in power, Macron was quite rude about NATO. He described it as brain dead, I think. With Ukraine, that's all changed, hasn't it? Ah, that's a very good question. Has Does Macron no longer think that NATO is experiencing brain death, as, as he famously said in 2019? I think it's hard for me to say you know, in in a way that is completely definitive. But what we can see for sure is that NATO as an alliance today is not, well, its, its importance isn't questioned, at least in terms of how to deal with the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Of course, NATO is not responding militarily to that uh, Russian invasion of Ukraine, but 
France is actually playing quite an important role in contributing to NATO deterrence, deterrence on the eastern flank of NATO. So they've sent reinforcements to the Baltic states, Lithuania, Estonia. They've deployed a new mission to Romania. All of that in support of the greater NATO effort to deter Russia from expanding the current ongoing war from just Ukraine to neighboring NATO countries. And Ukraine seems to have been love bombing France. The defense ministry sent out a tweet recently, um, you know, begging them in flattering terms for more weapons. And Macron was first on the phone to Zelensky after the missile strikes on Ukrainian cities. Is he now driving the EU's response to Ukraine? He isn't. He's trying to be seen as leading and driving the EU response to the Russian invasion of Ukraine. It's actually been very interesting to see over the past eight months how much he's had a hard time exercising leadership because the Eastern European countries like Poland, the Baltic states like Estonia, like Lithuania, like Latvia, have been extremely vocal, extremely steadfast in very quickly expressing unreserved support for Ukraine and supporting the maximum kind of military support and actually sending everything they have to Ukraine. Whereas the French response when it comes to military aid to Ukraine has been hesitant, has been slightly reluctant. Part of it is political and part of it is because quite simply, they don't have the stocks and their industry, their military industry is not able to produce the weapons that the Ukrainians need fast enough and at pace. And that's something the French are working on right now. That being said, Macron, France, held the presidency of the Council of the EU from January 2022 to June 2022. So they had the presidency when the invasion started, and they definitely played a leadership role in the EU response when it comes to sanctions. And the sanctions have been quite effective. Uh, they managed to keep unity among the EU countries, which wasn't a given, even with someone like Viktor Orban, the Hungarian leader who is very, very chummy with Putin and was not really a big fan of sanctions, but still voted on the sanctions uh, with the EU. So that's the kind of leadership that uh, Macron has been able to have in response to the Russian invasion of Ukraine. But I have to say, it is not at the level that we expect from a country like France that has nuclear power, that has a seat on the UN Security Council, and that sees itself as one of the most important powers in the world. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust, or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. 
Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. Let's move back to the relationship with the US because it goes back pretty much as far as you can go. If you look back at 1778, France quickly sided with the new United States, didn't it? And of course, against England at the time. Do most of the French value their relationship with the US, do you think? Yes. So it's very interesting to to uh, differentiate between the elites in France and normal people, the average person. I'll give you a quite a funny statistic. Outside of the US, the place that has the biggest number of McDonald's in the world is France. It is not any other country, if you can believe it, the country of, of wonderful food. And why is that? It's because the idea of McDonald's, meaning at least in some ways, the ethos of the Americans, you know, be yourself, have the freedom to do what you want, etc., etc., is very compelling and very appealing to French people. French people love to go to the U.S. Uh, for tourism. The, they love to go to the universities in the U.S. They recognize uh, how great they are. They consume as much uh, U.S. pop culture in terms of series and and movies and uh, music and just all of that pop culture as anyone else in the world. When it comes to the French elites, there is a real anti-American sentiment among the intellectual elites, at least a, a big part of the intellectual elite, some of the business elite, not all of it, and some of the military and political diplomatic elites. Why? Because despite, and you're right to point to the fact that France was the first important ally uh, that supported U.S. independence. And that's something the Americans haven't forgotten. And that's something that doesn't necessarily weigh that much with these elites that I just described. The way they see America today is tied to a part of their own history that is a little embarrassing for them and that they haven't really come to terms with. And that's World War II. The fact that they needed saving by the U.S., which these elites perceive as a less sophisticated, less important country in terms of history than France, still hasn't gone down well with them. They, they haven't really gotten over that. I've actually have conversations with people among those elites that tell me it was not the U.S. that you know saved France from the Nazis. It was Charles de Gaulle and Churchill they're the ones who actually defeated the Nazis. And, you know, it's hard to argue with that, given that the facts very clearly state that it was, you know, the U.S. getting into the war, of course, in support of Charles de Gaulle, who played a very important role in France, and Churchill beyond that even. But without the U.S., you know, that was really the turning point of World War II. So it, it starts there, you know, that's, that's truly uh, the beginning of that true divorce. And I was pretty surprised when uh, Russia invaded uh, Ukraine in February to hear this anti-Americanism pop up again on uh, television sets, uh, in public debates, uh, where 
think tankers and former diplomats and former generals, French generals, would say things along the lines of, this invasion benefits the U.S. This is not something we should be dragged into. We should not be following the U.S. on the response to Russia. So that is something that weighs on the relationship between the two countries. That is a common narrative, though, and parts of the left, isn't it? And I mean, it's also something that Marine Le Pen has exploited in her campaigns. I mean, both Biden and Macron actually face quite real threats from the far right. And do you think that helps to unite them? Yes and no, because I think they have very different responses to the far right. Um, Biden's response has been a very classical response, one uh, that kind of stands firm on basics and principles and, and doesn't try in any way to appease the far right in the US. Also, the nature of the far right in the US is a bit different than the nature of the far right in, in France, even though you're right to say that uh, the far right in France has deep connections to the Trump camp in the US. But in France, Macron over the past six years, while he has fought against the progress of the far right in French politics, he has also appeased them in some ways, and he has tried to borrow from their rhetoric when it comes to security, internal security in France, for example, how to respond to migration. Uh, some of his appoint, you know, some of the ministers he appointed have definitely borrowed the language of the far right. That is not something that you see with the Biden administration. And I think that's a, a really huge, important difference uh, in the way both of these presidents have decided to face sort of the populist far right as it's as it's grown, you know, one parallel I always draw is that Macron could end up being the Obama of France in that Obama, part of Obama's legacy in the US is that Donald Trump was elected president after eight years of Barack Obama as president. And Macron, in his second term, has seen the biggest number of far-right MPs be elected to the French parliament in history. 89 far-right MPs were elected to parliament in April or May when the French held their parliamentary elections. And the big question now is, will Marine Le Pen, the leader of the far-right in France, be elected president in 2027 when Macron's second term ends and he can no longer run. Macron is on a state visit to Biden at the beginning of December. What will he want to get out of that? Everyone is going to be watching the state visit very, very closely. So the fact that France and Macron got the first state visit of Biden's presidency was seen in a good light, but also seen as the final way America is trying to make up for the AUKUS blindsiding and debacle. So that's one component of it. They nevertheless have some very important issues to discuss and some on which they don't really see eye to eye. I think China is going to be a very big part of the conversation and they continue not to see eye to eye on the best way to respond to the challenge coming from China. 
The U.S. position is a much more stern position, much more confrontational position, and the French position is more conciliatory, continues to try to see ways in which China can be a partner, not just an adversary or a competitor. That's one big issue. They're definitely going to discuss Russia and the continued need to respond to the invasion because unfortunately no one expects the war in Ukraine to be done by December 1st. We, we hope and pray it will, but no one really expects it will. So this will be a major part of, of their conversation. They will also discuss the climate, something that they do see eye to eye on because Biden brought the US back into the Paris Climate Agreement, something that Macron was very happy about. And they will be discussing also their industrial competition issues. For example, the French have insisted in the EU program of defense procurement that EU funds should not be used to buy American weapons, that they should be used to buy European-made weapons. That is a big bone of contention between the two countries. The US sees this as unfair. And that point will definitely come up. Reem, thanks so much for joining us and for all those insights into the new special relationship. Thank you, Roz. We know things are tough for a lot of people at the moment, but if you feel you can support us to keep making the bunker, just search Patreon Bunker Podcast. Thanks for listening and until next time. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. The Bunker Daily was written and presented by Roz Taylor. The producers were Jacob Archbold, Yelena Sofronievich and Alex Rees, with assistant production from Kasia Tomashevich. The lead producer was Jacob Jarvis, and the audio producer was me, Jade Bailey. Group editor Andrew Harrison, theme tune by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker is a Podmasters production. <laughs> <laughs>